0: Good morning, Incarnation. Good morning. It is so good to be back with you this morning, finally. <laughs> yeah. um, the whole family has missed all of you enormously this summer. Um, over the past few months, we've visited a bunch of different churches in several different countries, many different denominations, and all of them made us homesick to be back with you guys. This truly is a special congregation. This is a sweet and a rare work of God. And I am grateful beyond words for you. Um, I wanna thank you so much for giving us, me and my family, that long sabbatical break. I wanna really thank Taylor and Fumi and all the staff for shouldering that extra load uh, because the Lord's really used this summer to bless us in all kinds of ways. Uh, we had the chance to travel together and reconnect with my family in England and to study and to pray. And we stopped and we rested. I didn't answer my phone or check my email. Um, and the Lord granted us basically a complete break from all our normal problems. Um, it's not that there weren't hard days or tears, but they were for different reasons. Um, and that change in itself was refreshing. It did our hearts good. Then we got back into town last week, and we had just a horrible journey home. And pretty much the first thing we did back in Tallahassee was all get COVID. Um, And I spent a week in bed, hardly able to stand up. Um, So it's been really quite a rough re-entry. And the question has occurred to us more than once, why can't all of life be sabbatical? (laughs) Or at least, why can't normal life be like even just a bit more like sabbatical? Uh, perhaps you sent your children back to school this week, and you've already tasted the stress of homework and early mornings and friend drama, and maybe you're asking a similar question. Why can't life be a bit more like summer? Uh, Wendy Robertson told me yesterday, why can't we be back in Yellowstone? <laughs> um, And we all know that there is a good answer to this question, right? We don't just whistle in the wind and throw that question out into the void. We actually have an answer for it. Um, And some of the answers uh, to those questions are found today in our reading uh, from Hebrews chapter 12. So I'm going to ask you to find Hebrews 12. I don't have a page number for you this morning. You have to find it by yourself. It's toward the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. In your church Bibles. If someone has a page number, please do shout it out. One thousand and eight. Great. This is a really wonderful passage, very very important to a whole Christian faith, and uh, the truth that we find in Hebrews 12 is that the world is at war, right? The world is at war, and we ourselves have been enlisted to fight, and that's really the primary reason that normal life doesn't feel like sabbatical. Um, So I want to begin in Hebrews 12 in verse 4. We're going to come back and do the early verses at the end, but let's start here in verse 4. Because the writer says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's a lovely verse, isn't it? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have a struggle. You have a personal fight against sin. Did you even know that you had a struggle? (laughs) Well, you do. Uh, We all do. It says here in Hebrews that all Christians have a struggle, and it's our daily battle with indwelling sin. And that little battle that we have is a small part of a global war that is raging every day between God and evil. So you probably remember that Adolf Hitler had a book that launched him into political prominence in the 1920s, and his book was called Mein Kampf. And Irma and Elke can tell us that Mein Kampf means my struggle. The book described Hitler's lifelong struggle to promote the Aryan race, what he called the genius race, and destroy the Jewish parasite. Much later, when the World Trade Center was attacked in 2001, most of us learned the word jihad for the first time. And our Arabic-speaking friends will tell us that jihad in Arabic means exactly the same thing, my struggle. In the case of the jihadists, it's the struggle to promote worldwide submission to Allah and Islam by all means necessary. And on the same theme, you might have read in history class that there's a paper by Dr. Martin Luther King entitled Our Struggle, which outlines his reasons and his methods for devoting his life to the cause of political and economic justice for black Americans. Same title. Good struggles, there are bad struggles, but the word is being used in the same way in all three of these places. It describes a lifelong fight to accomplish your goal or die trying. My Struggle. And friends, That is the kind of struggle that each of us has in our own lives against sin. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's war, and it's not over till there's blood on the floor. That word resisted in Greek is a military word, meaning to set up a line of troops against the enemy. And we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood, have we? Are we ready to stand up and be Adolf Hitler against sin? Or to be Osama bin Laden against sin? Or to be Martin Luther King against sin? I doubt anyone's ever used those three in the same sentence before. Uh, But each of them had a struggle, and so do we we know that we stand in a long line of people who did resist sin, literally to the point of shedding their blood. It begins, first and foremost, with our Lord Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him, verse 2 says, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But then following Jesus, Peter also resisted to the point of shedding his blood. And so did Paul, and James, and John the Baptist, and unimaginable thousands in the centuries since, including however many hundred saints will shed their blood in that resistance today. And it will be hundreds in India and Pakistan, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, and many other places where allegiance to Jesus can be a death sentence. But long before the point where blood is spilled, this fight this fight defines our whole lives, doesn't it? This ongoing war is what makes daily life wearisome, sorrowful, and painful. All our suffering in this world is on account of one cause, sin. And we continue to groan in our daily lives for the single reason that our enemy, sin is not yet beaten. When the battle is finally won, then we will rest. We will sabbatical forever not until that day. Until that day, there is a global struggle between God and evil, and we are a part of it. We are wrapped up in it, whether we like it or not. A place to take our stand and a fight like hell is not primarily out there in the world. It's in here, in our own hearts, isn't it? Because the commands in Hebrews 12 are for each of us to fight his or her own sin. Our struggle is against sin and also to embrace God's discipline for the sake of our personal holiness. There may also be a calling on our lives to then participate in the battle on a larger scale, like Dr. King did, but that comes only after we've taken our stand in our own hearts. It's never at the expense of the war within, which is God's call to every Christian. So first, we experience life as hard and tiring because every day there's a war Against sin. But now, second, every day we are being fathered for our good. And this comes as a great comfort. So Hebrews goes on in verse 5 Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And here, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting directly from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Solomon wrote these words and addressed his words to his son. He says, my son, perhaps literally his own son, Rehoboam. But Hebrews, hears the voice of God through that scripture, addressing each one of us personally in the words as my son and my daughter. Meaning God has accepted us. He has taken us in. He has taken responsibility for each one of us, and that naturally includes overseeing our discipline and our correction. Verse 7 goes on, It is for discipline that you have to endure. And that word discipline in Greek is not negative or punitive. It's a word that just describes the whole process of parenting as it shapes a child's character. It is for discipline that you have to endure. In his holiness. So the metaphor in these verses has switched from military to family, but the struggle is the same, isn't it? God fathers us out of sin and into holiness. It's a process, it's a long process. It's not finished yet, but it has a purpose, it has a goal, it has an end. God's goal for us is that we will finally get to share his holiness. That Greek word for share is a lovely word. It's it's like sharing a meal. It means to receive a share in. Imagine the family of God around the dinner table receiving the meal of God's holiness. He wants to feast us with his holiness. And friends, we'd better believe that that's going to taste good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope that as we all grow up in Christ, that we're developing a strong appetite for holiness to grow more and more like God in all his ways, in all his thoughts, to have less and less to do with sin or the influence of sin. We need to want that with all our hearts, to consider holiness pure joy. Because once we do, then all our suffering becomes purposeful. All our suffering becomes beneficial. The worst experiences of our lives are completely redeemed by this text. Because as Christians, we are not done with suffering, not yet. Actually, in a lot of ways, our allegiance to Jesus makes us suffering worse, not better. It puts us at odds with the world. It often attracts the scorn of our neighbors. It costs us the world's rewards and comforts. And sometimes, especially in other countries, it leads to outright persecution. And that might seem confusing. We ask, why, Lord? Why should I still have to suffer? Didn't you forgive me? Didn't you pay for all my sin? And a big part of the answer to those questions is found right here in Hebrews. We learn that for Christians, suffering is not ended, but it is transformed, completely transformed. Because suffering stops being a punishment for sin, and it becomes a training in righteousness. It stops being a threat of judgment that's coming, and it becomes a promise of eternal peace that's coming. Because verse 11 promises... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's painful rather than pleasant. Or the Greek here is deeper. It says sorrowful rather than joyful. They're both words that pertain to the heart, really, and not the body. Suffering, it has a tendency to get us in the heart, doesn't it? to discourage us and and to depress us. And those effects are are probably much worse than anything that it does to the body. We could all handle a little bit of pain. It's much worse to be made sorrowful through our suffering. But that's what Hebrews says it does. But it comes with a promise that that sorrow is meaningful because later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we embrace hardship as discipline because of the fruit that comes later. Think about the ancient uh, Israelites when they were in Egypt. In Egypt, those Hebrews were made slaves, and they were subject to hard labor. And we read often in Exodus of how miserable they were. They were oppressed, and they were downhearted, and they were discouraged, and they were miserable. But there are some athletes today who work just as hard physically as they did, as many hours of intense physical exertion. But they choose it. They embrace it. Why? It's because they believe in the purpose. They believe it has purpose, and they want the fruit that that physical labor brings. And for us, if we believe that God our Father uses every drop of sweat and every spilled tear to accomplish good in our hearts, and progress us toward the peaceful fruit of righteousness in the end, then we will stop feeling like slaves and victims of suffering, and will start to feel like athletes, like champions, on the way to gold medal glory. That is how the gospel of Jesus transforms our suffering if we let it. The pain itself becomes something that we can bear, even welcome, because it accomplishes good and helps us in our main struggle in the war against sin. So every day there's a war on against sin and every day we're being fathered for our good. So now finally every day our job is to endure. So we're gonna come back to verse one at the end here. I saved this for last. And I really hope that you saved up a little bit of listening energy, uh, because this part's really good. (laughs) I love all of God's word, but this verse, boy, oh boy, this verse is breathtaking. Hebrews 12, verse 1, memorize this and drink it in. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Wow, that's a good verse. Our goal every day, we see there at the end, is to endure. And that is a big theme of this whole passage. In verse two, we read that Jesus endured the cross. Same word. In verse 3, we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And again in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So that's the big idea here. But let's look again at the details of verse 1. And I'm going to do something I don't usually do and get really nerdy in the Greek on this verse. Um, because there's such a lot going on. And just as as I looked at this, I was like, this is unbelievable. So we're going to take it one word at a time, all right? Verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, this is a special form of therefore, which introduces a grand conclusion in formal Greek rhetoric. This word is used here and one other time in the whole Bible. So listen up. Therefore, since we are surrounded, that word means hemmed in, encompassed all about, often against our will. And Paul once used this very word to talk about his imprisonment when he said, I am wearing this chain. I'm wearing it. I'm surrounded by it. We are surrounded By so great, that's great in terms of quantity, not quality. It means numerous, uncountable, so great a cloud. This word is what scholars call a hapax legomenon. Say that with me, hapax legomenon. It's very fun to say. It means a word that only occurs once in the whole Bible. The writer here has employed a weather metaphor of a kind of shapeless cloud. Not a pretty little cumulus in the sky, but it's a kind of misty cloud which has no shape. And he's using that as a metaphor for a multitude. So the Latin, when it comes to translate this, uses the word nebula. So if you think of uh, our English word nebulous, sort of meaning formless, but also the space word, like the crab nebula, um, it's a vast collection of stars, completely uncountable. So we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the Greek marturion. The word for witness gives us our English word martyr. And we remember just how many among the great cloud of witnesses were literally martyrs who died for their faith. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and there's a long list of who he means back in chapter 11, but how much longer that list is today, let us also also, just like them, along with them, we are numbered among them. Let us also lay aside. That's not casual, that's violent. It means to cast away, to throw it away vigorously, lay aside every weight. That means a heavy burden, an encumbrance. It's another hapax legomenon. It's another unique word. Let us lay aside every burden and sin that clings so closely. This verb is yet another hapax. He's taken the Greek word for surround, and he's added the prefix for good or well. So he's created a brand new word that means like to surround skillfully. He's personifying sin here. So imagine like there's an NBA defender who's just top of his class. He's got long legs. He's got huge arms. He's quick as lightning. He blocks every move the shooter tries to make. He hampers him. He surrounds him. He stops him from making any progress. That's what sin does to you and me. And it does it skillfully. It does it very well. We have to train and we have to bring our A game if we want to win. Finally, we get to the end of the sentence. And let us run with endurance the race. That's a word for a competition, a fight where winner takes all. This is not a fun run, 5K. This is the Olympics. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We made it through. Set before us means Appointed, fated, or destined. And obviously, here that means by God. God has set you a race. He set you personally a difficult challenge. It's not the same for each person, but you have one, and so do I. It's appointed for us from before the foundations of the earth. It is designed for us by our Father God, just like He set a race. For Jesus, in verse 2, the challenge of the cross. Can you ask for more purpose in your life than that? That you have been set a personal race by God eternal for you to run and for you to win. And you have been given every gift of heaven to accomplish that and to have victory. Stop viewing the sufferings of your life as a distraction from the main thing. And start to realize they are the main thing. Will you rise to meet the challenge that God has ordained for you? Will you beat it? Will you win? If you want to win, then you must cast aside both the distractions and the sins. They're listed here in verse 1 as two separate things. Let us also lay aside every weight. And sin, which clings so closely. So, some things burden us and weigh us down, even though they're not actually sin. They're still, they still get in the way of us racing a good race. So, uh, I think I want to finish here with that thought of the, of the burdens, of the things that are not necessarily sinful, but they're, they're kind of clutter. What is the clutter in your life that's not necessarily sinful? but is wasting your time and your energy. It's distracting you from the main thing that God has given you to do. What are your unnecessary burdens? After being away for two months and staying away and staying in a bunch of hotel rooms, Sarah and I got home and we realized that we just had way too much furniture. (laughs) Um, We had a cabinet over here that that people were always bumping into and a chest of drawers over there that did nothing but accumulate junk on the top of it. And there was this like ugly, unnecessary couch. And so what we did is we cleaned house. We took a bunch of things to CityWalk because they weren't doing any good in our home. They were worthless clutter. And that felt really good. And our home is much happier without them. And now we ought to do the same thing with our lives. What's the clutter? What's the unnecessary furniture? We're so used to having it around, but it's not serving us. It's it's a burden, and it's slowing us down, and we're not going to win the race with all these burdens. I heard recently that one of our brothers uh, recently decided that alcohol was like one of those burdens for him. It wasn't a source of sin. It was just a distraction. It was blunting his edge, so he radically scaled back how much he drinks it. Well done, brother. Maybe others of you have a tendency to stay up too late watching TV so that you're always tired in the morning. It blunts your edge. Maybe that's an unnecessary bit of furniture that you can get rid of. Or maybe it's listening to so many podcasts that there's no silence in your life to hear God. Or having so much stuff in your house that it's hard to keep it clean and tidy and so you never really want to have people over for dinner. I expect that God is putting his finger on something in your own life right now, something that you know is just worthless clutter. Maybe he's been on your case about it for quite a while to get that cleared out. So I'm going to get out of his way and let you deal with him directly. But I'll just add my voice to say that it feels great to clear out old junk. You never regret it for a minute. And you might be surprised by how much you can accomplish and God can accomplish through you without that stuff in the way. Let's take a few moments of silence now to do business with God in response to his word.